Hey, everybody. John Montoya here. Hey, guys. This is John Parings. Welcome to today's show. We're going to be talking about debt reduction and how it incorporates with infinite banking. Yes, sir. So this would kind of fall into the strategies that can be used um, when you have a properly funded infinite banking whole life insurance policy. Gives you more options to handle all the different things that are going to happen in your life than you would have without it. And um, I think what we're going to talk about today is there's, there's sort of a, a, a problem that happens a lot of times with a lot of people where they prioritize debt. And, and, you know, people talk about being financially free, getting out of debt, never having debt. And one of the problems is by prioritizing debt, what they're essentially doing is prioritizing cash flow to going to other people's financial systems over their own, right? And so a lot of people right now have done that. They've prioritized cash flow to outside financial institutions. And right now we're getting a curveball thrown at us. And because of that, a lot of people are now having to go back to credit cards because they're not in the best cash position they could be. And so now we're finding people are going to have to start running up debt again. And so, you know, how could we have alleviated this to begin with? And then now, and if, since it's already happening, how could, what's a game plan we could turn to, to, uh, to help, people get out of that debt in the future when things start to turn around here. Yeah. So hopefully people have prioritized savings and have the discipline to save because the number one thing with infinite banking, if you're coming into IBC with, uh, with no outside savings elsewhere and you're just simply relying on debt, that, that's a whole nother issue uh, where you, you need to capitalize your policy so that you can tackle um, any any debt that you have. And so it may be putting the cart before the horse. So I do wanna make clear that if you have a lot of debt, then you're probably gonna have an issue or at least a, a greater challenge in funding an IBC plan. Uh, any thoughts different from that? that you No, have and in fact, you know, when we were talking before um, what you just said um, crystallized what you what you were telling me earlier, and I think um, what you're saying is before before you start an IBC policy, um, you should have you know two or three months worth of you know expenses at least, if not income, Mentally. in the bank. Um, because I think what you're what you were saying earlier is you know if you just jump right into IP, IBC, you don't have any savings, and you've got a bunch of debt payments. You're a, you're a higher likelihood of, of running into an issue where you cannot pay your premium, and if that happens in the especially in the first year, that's a really bad time to to have a, a collapsed policy because you couldn't make a premium payment. Absolutely. In fact, when I got started with IBC, a lot of my initial clients were were funding policies at 250 a month, 300 a month. I got a lot of those in, in my uh, book of business. And what I discovered early on is that those people, um, I was working with a lot of people that had debt. And so those people that were on the lower end of funding these IBC policies, they didn't really have much in the way of an emergency account outside 
their IBC policy. And what happened is 10% of my book of business seemed to be always in jeopardy of lapsing their policy because a car would break down or, you know, something would come up and they wouldn't have the cash flow to continue funding their policy in the first 12 to 18 months. Mm. And so while there is flexibility to an IBC premium, we can reduce the premium. Um, it, it gets, it gets pretty rough in the early going. If you don't have that emergency account saved someplace else, because the first thing that's going to go when you need to increase your cash flow are these life insurance policies. Yeah. And it should be the last thing to go. Um, you know, where I, I had a client who had a, one of, one of the spouses went on disability. And so they started looking at places where they could cut some, you know, cut some expenses. And I was like, just make sure this is the last place because this is your, um, you know, this is your, uh, you know, go to fund your safest money. So think of yourself like a bank, you know, a bank has what's called tier one capital. Well, this is your tier one capital. So make sure this is the last place you cut. And like you said, that, you know, that being said, as you said, um, you know, there is flexibility in terms of how much you can pay in ter- um, from a premium perspective, but thinking long range, like this is the last place you want to cut in my opinion. Um, but that being said, a lot of times it happens. And so we just want to make sure that does not happen, especially in those first few years while we're kind of seeding the policy. Right. And so that, that's why I adopted that rule where, you know, two to three months worth of expenses um, mm-hmm. for people who are starting at the lower end, 250, 300 a month. I mean, my, my minimum these days is 500 a month. Yeah. But I'll ask them, do you have $5,000 set aside minimally? Yep. If yep. you don't put that money aside first and then let's, let's connect and get you started. Yeah. That's a great, a great way to do it. Um, well, the, so, you know, speaking of debt, so now that we've got sort of the, the rule of thumb ground rules, um, you know, one of the things that is important in becoming your own banker, that's the book written by Nelson Nash that started the infinite banking concept, um, movement, I guess, if you want to call it, um, he talks about interest rates versus interest volume. And a lot of times people really focus on the interest rate that they have with different types of debts, but that's not really the full picture. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's not the, when you're making monthly payments, that interest rate is not really the entire picture when it comes to what you're actually paying. And he talks about interest volume, where if you take a look at, you know, the interest portion of your payment, what does that percentage look like? And then we start to get into the concept of interest volume, where he says most Americans, uh, out of every dollar that comes into their system, 35 cents of that goes out towards servicing some type of debt. Right. You may think you're paying 4% on a loan, and you actually have 35 cents for every dollar going out the window. 
And even more than that, if we look at, you know, a million dollar loan, and it depends on when you are in the amortization schedule. So amortization schedules for anyone who's not familiar with that, when you go buy a house, the bank's going to create what's called an amortization schedule that determines the amount of interest that goes into each of your uh, mortgage payments. And so in that first year, if we take a million dollar loan at 4%, for 30 years, the payment for that over the course of the year is $58,000, right? Well, $40,000 of that in year one is interest. Only 18,000 of it is principal. That's a 70% effective interest rate or the interest volume on that payment is 70%, right? Now, obviously that goes down and it evens out over those 30 years. But we have to take a look at what that actually means, you know, where the interest volume doesn't equal the principal until year 15, halfway through, halfway through the amortization schedule, which makes sense. Yeah, that's, it's basically a sleight of hand. You know, you think you're paying a certain amount. And in truth, that's why they call it the truth in lending form. When you get that mortgage, the truth is that if you look what the total cost of the financing is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, I was buying my first house in 2001 up in Sacramento. And when I signed the, the mortgage paperwork, I got a crystal clear idea how much that house was actually costing me yeah. over 30 years. Yep. And what occurred to me is that the bank was actually making more money than uh, KB Homes, <laughs> my first house. So KB Homes is putting up all this money uh, to, to build these houses and the bank puts up no money. You know, they put up the money for the mortgage. Actually, they don't even put it up. They, that money comes out of thin air, but that's a whole nother story. Right. Um, but the banks are making more money than the builders are. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's the, by the way, same deal, same deal with car dealerships. You know, if we, if we look at, you know, most people when they're, and this is also in, in becoming your own banker, most people, you know, they buy a house or they buy a car and they finance it um, through, through some type of loan. And most often people will turn around within, you know, well within 10 years for their, for their house and they'll refinance that. And what happens is you're, you just started, you just got pretty close to the point where the interest, where the principal was going to start meeting the interest portion of your payment. And now you just refinanced it and reset your amortization schedule. Now you're back to year one of your new amortization schedule. Um, and now you're paying, you know, 70% effective interest. Obviously that number changes depending on, you know, all the different factors, but you're now at a high interest volume again. And same thing with your car, you know, most people buy a car and then they trade it in. And so they're always paying that high effective interest cost, you know, for their payments or they're leasing cars, which is probably the least financially beneficial. So constantly recycling these high uh, interest volume transactions where a lot of interest is getting is going out the door servicing debt. And I think a question to ask or at least ponder is why are people needing to refinance their mortgage? A lot of people refinance a mortgage because they need to pay off debt someplace else. Wow. 
Yeah. And why are they doing that? Because they don't have the money put aside anywhere else. Yep. Yep. So their, their home becomes their ATM. It's a big problem. And then, you know, then you have home equity loans and everything on top of that. Now, um, I, we'll probably get into this a little bit later in our discussion. I, I don't think it's necessarily bad to refinance to free up cash flow as long as you're using that that freed up cash flow to then do something economically productive. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I agree. And that may even be putting a, a certain percentage of that equity, not a large percentage, but a certain percentage of equity that maybe funds another policy to provide additional liquidity. Exactly. And so let's talk about some like interest rate comparisons and we'll, we'll get back into the, uh, well, let's, let's jump into the, to the mortgage example. So a lot of people, because you know, you just mentioned it, a lot of people will make additional payments to a mortgage. So let's take a, let's take an example where someone refinances from a 15 year to a 30 year mortgage. Let's say the interest rate is just the same. Let's say interest rates went down since they did the, the original mortgage and they freed up say $8,000 in cash flow over that year. Now, a lot of people will take that freed up $8,000 that um, from their, from their, refinance mortgage and they'll continue paying that to the 30 year mortgage so that they can pay that down more quickly. And by doing so they, they pay less interest, but that's not the, that's not the full picture and that's not how the time value of money works. And so I think what you what you just suggested was what if we could take that freed up cash flow and apply that to uh, a new life insurance policy? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the most recent application that I submitted was for a client that recently refinanced into a new 30-year mortgage and had the goal to pay off their mortgage, be mortgage-free in 20 years. And in order to do that, had committed to sending an extra $1,500 a month over payment in order to have that mortgage paid off in 20 years. I ran the numbers and $1,500 a month over 20 years, the projection was cash value at 599,000. Yep. And so the question became, which would you rather have? No mortgage in 20 years or the ability to pay off your mortgage with that 599,000 in cash value from your policy? still leaving you, you know, close to $100,000 after taxes, which would you rather have? I mean, are you willing to sacrifice $100,000 over 20 years? Not to mention the side benefits of having the liquidity and access to that money should you ever need it. Well, if you're putting all your money into your mortgage, you know, you don't have any room for error. And so by establishing this policy, with the goal of in 20 years time, if you wanna be mortgage free, you use the money to pay off the mortgage and there you go, you're mortgage free. And you still are coming out of it with another 100,000 plus. Yes. If you, if you know, even if you don't want the policy anymore. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people think, you know, they pay down their mortgage um, because by, ma by making those additional principal payments, 
you do pay less interest overall. That is true, but you're paying down, you're, you're, you're reducing 3% interest at the cost of being able to earn four or 5% over here in your whole life insurance policy before everybody don't quote me on four and 5%. It depends on your, your health and your wealth, but that's the general, those are the general parameters. So you're not economically better off. Basically when you pay when you make additional payments to pay down 3% debt over and above what you're supposed to pay, you're saying you can't do anything better with that additional payment than 3%. And, and it's just not true. And additionally, who's in a better position? Like, so a lot of people want to pay down their mortgage more quickly because they feel like they're getting out from under the bank. Um, they're getting out of debt and they're making them, they're making their uh, future, um, you know, safer, but who's actually safer when you run on hard times, someone who has, a higher payment and no savings or someone who has a lower payment and a bunch of savings, just like you mentioned where, where your new client had built up, up almost a half or over a half a million dollars worth of cash value um, in that policy. So if, who's better off when they run on hard times, ha having a half a million dollars in cash value or having a house that is almost paid off. <laughs> and by the way, what, when is a bank more likely to foreclose on you when you have very little left on your mortgage balance or when you have a lot left on your mortgage balance, the banks bank doesn't want to be in the real estate business, you know, so they'll, they'll foreclose on you and fire sell your house much more easily when you have a low mortgage balance. It's kind of like a, it's like a opposite of what you'd think. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, something Mark Twain is famous for saying uh, basically uh, a bank is always willing to lend you an umbrella when the sun is shining. But when it starts raining, you know, they ask for that umbrella back as quickly as possible. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, and, and by the way, making, making prepayments on your mortgage or paying down the principal. So if you, if you transfer $10,000 to make a principal payment on your house, did that improve your financial life at all? <laughs> it's a, you went from 10,000 cash to 10,000 equity. And so there's no increase in your financial life. And, and I would argue that it's even, it's actually worse because you just created a situation where you, in order to get to that $10,000, you now have to ask permission from the bank to get it. <laughs> Not only that, but you've also increased your tax liability because don't forget right. your mortgage interest is one of the largest tax deductions that you can get. So you're, you're effectively... Uh, increasing your tax liability every single year, you accelerate the payoff of that mortgage. That's right. That's right. Um, so what about, actually, just to wrap that up, instead of taking, a if you have additional cash flow and you have the choice to put that into uh, paying down the principal on your house, which is one asset, or taking that cash flow and creating a second asset that will give you the ability to pay off that house if you ever need to, which seems more logical. So we're, we're, what we're doing is we're creating a second asset with the exact same cash flow. And by the way, it's even safer than your house. It's guaranteed, it's tax-free, you know, um, and, it, and it's, it's guaranteed to grow every single year and it produces income down the road. So it's, um, it seems like a no-brainer 
um, in order, you know, when you, when you start comparing those types of, uh, it, when you compare it in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess one more thought for me is that over time, if you keep your mortgage, the monthly bite on that mortgage starts to get reduced thanks to our pals over at the Federal Reserve. That's right. And what they, what they do in increasing the money supply, you know, mm-hmm. I'm referring to inflation. I, I think about the mortgage that my parents had on their house. They bought a house in 1972 in Dublin, California, and their original mortgage was 27000 And I think their monthly payment was between three and $400 a month, which at the time when they got that mortgage felt like a lot, but fast forward 20 plus years yep. and it really wasn't. Right. That's right. Paying in future devalued dollars. So what about, so that's an example of low interest debt. What about high interest debt? And, you know, one of the questions we can ask, so high interest debt being, you know, um, credit cards, obviously, you know, let's just say, let's say we'll put our low barrier of high interest debt at 8%, right? That's pretty high right now. Well, a lot of people, what they do is they have all this debt, uh, you know, credit card, you know, all that stuff. Let's say credit cards on the high end were in like the 22%. So can you get ahead investing in your qualified plan at your company where you take all this money and you just comes right out of your check before you even see it, funnel that in and you get your mythical 8% average rate of return. Can you get ahead doing that while you still owe 20% debt on your credit cards? No, I'm going to say, you know, if you're, if you're paying double digits on any type of debt, you should be looking to uh, extricate yourself from that debt as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it's just another example of when debt gets prioritized, you know, um, you, you start to, you're, you're lengthening the amount of time that you have that it takes in order to really start building up, you know, the, the asset side of your balance sheet. (laughs) And, you know, if you're trying to invest over here while you've got this 20% credit card debt over there, you're really not, you're not building up the asset side of your balance sheet because it's being offset by that high interest. And so one of the strategies there is using whole life insurance where, you know, if most people who are trying to get out of debt, um, are familiar with, you know, snowballing their debt, the, the snowball strategy, which is, which is rock solid, um, where they're taking additional money and they're applying that to paying down the principal on their high interest credit card debt, which in this case, it makes sense to do that because it's super high interest, higher than what you can earn anywhere, most likely. And there are no tax benefits. So, um, in this case, it does make sense to apply additional payments that to get out of that as quickly as possible. But is there a more efficient way to do it? Because one of the problems is when, when you allocate as much as you can to paying down your debt, when you prioritize that, once you're done paying it off, a lot of times people end up, you know, they're kind of like at square one and they, you know, they don't, they're not in a good cash position. And then something comes along like right now, and they end up having to go back into debt in order to, you know, take care of whatever needs to get taken care of. 
And so is there a better way that we can, you know, um, is there a better way to align our assets to where we can create a, a cash asset and pay off debt more quickly so that when we're all done, we pay it off faster. And when we're all done, we actually have a bunch of money sitting in the bank. Absolutely. That's IBC. That's but you right. have to have IBC. the discipline to capitalize first. That's right. You have to capitalize first and then you have to, you can't take that freed up money when you pay your debt off. You can't just take that and, you know, go to uh, burning man with it or go to, you know, Coachella. You can't put that towards your lifestyle. That has to now be redirected because that's what you were living on before. Take that and redirect that towards building up your assets. Right. Overcome Parkinson's law. Now you right. said go to Birmingham. Is is that where you? I said Burning Man. Oh, Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Birmingham. Uh, I don't know too many people that go to Birmingham unless it's yeah. for the think tank. Yeah. Unless you're an Alabama fan. Yeah. Go Tide. Uh, That's right. Burning Man. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> I think I'm getting old, John. My, my hearing is not as good as it used to be. I know. We're well, throwing out terms like Burning Man. It's like, isn't that what the kids do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, phew. They we, do. We just, we just lost all of our potential uh, young clients by saying that probably. Yeah. Our, our millennials. Don't hold, are, it, don't hold us against us, millennials. We'll set you on the right track so you can go to Burning Man forever. Or Birmingham. Or Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> You'd get more out of going to the think tank in Birmingham, though. That's true. That's true. Well, here's a, one quick last example. A lot of times somebody gets a windfall from something. And now how can we, you know, they're tempted to just go pay off all their debt with it. Don't, don't do it talk to us first. There's a better way to do it where we can structure your assets to where you're not just starting from zero. We're building something up and creating another um, asset while we pay off that debt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very key. Yeah. Highly recommend anytime you come into money, talk to a financial advisor, a coach, you know, someone who can give you a different idea and maybe a, a smarter approach to how you can better utilize that money. And like you and I say, if it's not one of us, there's plenty of IBC advisors that you can find by visiting the uh, infinitebanking.org website. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. But before you do that, visit us at thefifthedition.com. And uh, that's where our podcast is, is hosted and held. And you can listen to uh, all of our other episodes. All right. Good talk. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody.